All right, so big movie come out, and it's not in the summer anymore, Richard. What do you think about Blade Runner 2049? Oh, wow, you're just going to get right into that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, uh, first off, I guess uh, I should tell all of our uh, listeners that uh, we have a special guest with us today. So it's going to be a, a... a trilogy of speakers, if you will, uh, in a movie that only, unfortunately, is not a trilogy yet, which may be a good thing or may not be. We'll find out as the conversation continues. <laughs> but with us today is uh, Blade Runner extraordinaire, Scott Tank. Thank you. It's quite an introduction. I hope I live up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to find out if Blade Runner also lived up to the hype in a few moments here. Um, yeah, it, I got to say, you're right, Mitch. It is... Uh, it is weird to see something that I think ha- would have a perception as a more big budget blockbuster, like summer type thing, like you were saying. Um, and so I think it is a little strange to kind of see that coming out closer towards uh, Oscar season. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that, uh, Mitch? Well, I would have to say that, you know, with the pedigree of the director, Denis Villeneuve, uh, he's kind of known for making these type of you know movies where it's very dramatic and you got you know oscar buzz around it and stuff like that so i'm not surprised at all um i love the way that he takes genre films and really puts uh a serious spin on it or you know puts so much thought and direction into it that uh we take these films seriously scott yeah for those uh for those oh before we uh sorry i mean to oh, no there. i was um, gonna say before we get into that uh i think we should point out that uh, he is also the director of uh enemy uh sicario arrival uh to name a few of his other films for listeners that may not be super familiar but yeah what what, what do you think about that scott well just kind of piggyback of what he was saying i've uh might be this might be blasphemous to say this i wasn't familiar that too familiar with Denny, or I've seen some of his movies, but then put it together that it was him that directed like Prisoners. Right, Prisoners and, is one of my then, favorite movies. That's that's the first one I saw of his, but I didn't put it together, you know, like that it was him. And then when they announced Blade Runner twenty forty nine, announced that he was directing it, kind of like right off the, the success of Arrival, which I still haven't seen. Sorry, but um, <laughs> I was like, well, that's an interesting choice. I'm like, who is this guy? And then I saw Sicario finally, and then after seeing Sicario, even though it's not a sci fi film, being like, oh, okay, just based on some of like. You know, how, how it's like a slow burn, that movie, how the overheads play out for like, you know, eight minutes at a time, you know, and, the, and I went, okay, I can see this guy totally doing Blade Runner. And then, lo and behold, after the first two minutes, like, yeah, this, is, this is this guy's movie, Denny Villanova, right? Villanova? I, honestly, I'm not sure. Denny Villanova. To, yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, yeah. to be honest. I, I think you could say... Dennis Villeneuve. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you ask like 20 different people, you're going to get 20 different answers, I'm yeah. sure. I believe it's Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Yeah. But based on this, I, I you know, I, I do want to see Arrival really bad now, and then Sicario I could always watch, you know. Um, and I've never seen Enemy. Is that his first movie? No, he he's done some other films before that. I think that was kind of the the one that maybe kind of put him on the radar for a lot of people. Yeah. Though was was Enemy. is it a foreign film? It's a Enemy. Yeah. Um, I maybe it yeah. might have been. I think that was it, Enemy's the one with um. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, right? Oh no, shit. yeah, it is. Okay. But oh. I still think he did it overseas. I don't think it was. I don't think it was an American film per se. But oh. I could be wrong on that. It's yeah. been a while since I've watched that. Oh. Prisoners was. was uh, I remember seeing that. And I remember really liking it. But I remember it doesn't end well for a couple of people. I mean, it's kind of a drag. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to spoil it for anybody who's yeah, like six years to check it out. But. Well, that's their fault. You know? Yeah, we we have what is it a three month rule here? If if they haven't seen it in three months, it's a fair game. I so, believe so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See by the time yeah. Prisoners twenty forty nine comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into actual Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I think we we have we you do a disservice without talking about Blade Runner first, right? Yes, one hundred percent. We do or would if we didn't talk about it. I should so. Say. Yeah. Yes. 1982 Blade Runner. Uh, how many times and which versions of the film have you seen since then? Both of you. Uh, I'm going to let Scott start that one off. Uh, um, the one I'm most familiar with is, the, I'm sure most people are, uh, is the theatrical. And I've, I've talked to Richard about this before. I remember my dad watching that movie a lot when I was younger. And me, you know, being that young, it's obviously not a, a kid's movie, but I remember being kind of bored, you know, my dad watching it. I was like, I don't know, eight. And the fact that I remember being bored, like, you know, because Indiana Jones was in it, but there was nothing Indiana Jones <laughs> going on. And then I think I was like 13 or 14. There was a, uh, I don't know if it was a Warner Brothers, like uh, film festival thing or something, but they showed like Goodfellas, JFK and Blade Runner was one of them. And I went with my oldest brother, Mike. And then seeing it for the first time on the big screen, I think it was like 13. And then once it, you know, queued off the big, you know, the, the opening shot of the, the cityscape is when I went like, oh, okay. And then from that moment on, you know, I was totally involved in the movie. And then I, I just became, you know, particularly the Roy Batty stuff in particular is what really hit home. But uh, that was my first kind of, you know, like, oh, I get it. And then I think I've, you know, seen various cuts here and there. And then I, somebody got me for Christmas, um, like a DVD or Blu-ray with like all, I think there's seven versions of it on there. Oh, wow. And I got three deep. There's like, you know, a European theatrical cut, you know, <laughs> like all this, all this stuff. And some <laughs> of them, there's like mi- very, like, you know, minor, minor, like, you know, changes. But I let, I made the mistake of letting somebody borrow it and they, uh, they now live in Texas. So um, I didn't get a chance to watch the other 15 versions that are on there. <laughs> It's like uh, some super niche Blade Runner yeah. cuts in there, you know, like the ultimate uh, underground tie release cut uh, director's special version. Um, no, yeah, I, I think it, I think it is interesting to, you know, because I mean, obviously, all of us would have been um, either extremely young or barely born yeah. or not born when this came out, <laughs> and so uh, you know, for me, I think it was interesting too because I I didn't actually fall into Blade Runner because of of film or Blade Runner as a as a franchise or as a as a movie, which is weird. What actually got me to watch Blade Runner the first time was uh, Fallout, the original Fallout video game when it released. There was a uh, mission uh, in I believe the south of the hub, which was a city that you could go to. And uh, you had to be, there was like certain requirements that uh, the game didn't like overtly tell you, but like if you had, you know, secretly behind the scenes met the requirement, you could do this mission. And uh, when you completed the mission, he actually gave you Deckard's gun. Oh, wow. And uh, I was like, oh, this is such a like super badass looking gun. Like wh- what is the story behind this and all that? And uh, I had a friend of mine uh, at the time named uh, Tony. And he's like, oh, my God, it's, it's a gun from Blade Runner. And I was like, wait a minute, what's, what, 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 was, what is Blade Runner? What is this thing you're talking about? He's like, oh, it's this movie. Like, you'll totally dig it. And uh, so I, I watched it. I, of course, I don't really recall what version of the film that, or, like, which cut that would have been at this point. It would have been in, like, 98, 97, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the first version I saw of it was. But the one I am the most familiar with is the final cut uh, as I think that's kind of become the standard, 
uh, and and really the only one that's still I think super readily available at least yeah. uh, is the Final Cut. And and weirdly enough, we were actually at work the other day and oh, yeah. we watched like the old uh, theatrical release. I believe it's theatrical release on VHS yeah. at at work, and oh. uh, it was it was crazy watching that because prior to going and watching twenty forty nine, I had watched the Final Cut twice. And so watching this now after seeing 2049 and seeing all the, you know, Decker narration and everything put back in there uh, was, it was just a trip. It was, it's a totally different film. And <laughs> Do you want to emphasize the bomb that was dropped there? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, like, and I don't know, have you seen like the original or do you recall a lot about that, that particular version, Mitch? So, okay, so uh, I've seen Blade Runner twice in my life total. Um, I know when I was incredibly young, I more than likely saw the theatrical version, not in theaters. I, I was born in 82, but uh, I know at some point someone showed it to me. And then I know I saw the movie probably about, let's see, seven years ago. And I, I don't, I think that's two, that's before the final version, the final cut came out. So it would probably have been the director's cut, uh, which surprisingly enough, as most people probably know, not made by the director, made by the producers. They just, you know, yeah. Ridley Scott just said, go ahead and say it's the director's cut. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> they but should, They should really just put the producer's cut, like, on there, yeah. like, in, yeah. in, like, air quotes or something. <laughs> you know, pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I really couldn't tell you um, the differences between... I know that there's the narration is, is a big part of it, of uh, which version you're watching and, uh, you know... Um, the the you know uh what what else oh the the unicorn dream right that's yeah. the other part mm -hmm. that's uh mm -hmm. that's the huge difference so i also didn't watch it before going into 2049 and uh i guess surprise surprise not i'm just not a big fan of the movie i mean not that i hate the movie i just i'm not i don't sing sure, its I've, praises I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that like aren't necessarily like blade runner nuts but they like appreciate it, but they that they never like really gotten into it necessarily. But right, they do exactly. Like everything about it and the influence it's had, and like you know the story and all that stuff. But they never actually like you know like really gotten into it and like been like totally like enthralled with everything that goes on. I've met a lot of people that are, that are like that. Yeah, like I I completely understand how influential it is because if you see uh, science fiction movies prior to Blade Runner coming out, and you look at cities and the way uh, future cities are de are depicted everything's so utopian as opposed mm -hmm. to once Blade Runner came out, it's future cities are allowed to be gritty, dark, and, you know, uh, maybe not the best place to live. And, uh, I think they definitely continue onto that with, uh, with the sequel here. So, mm -hmm. uh, what was your original question, Richard? No, no, no. I was just saying, if you recalled like the, like if the version that you watched had like the, the, the Deckard narration, uh, or if it, didn't because the final cut does not have that at Correct, all like God. there isn't any of that and and I, I personally think it makes it a much better film but when we we're watching the original one which it totally has it you know i, I go ahead if you would do your impersonation real quick i think it's uh, great deckard yeah yeah De so deckard's talking to m emmett walsh uh it's the first scene with m emmett walsh is the the police chief uh police chief and he uh he said he was talking about uh how m emmett walsh is like an old school kind of guy he was you know and it's pretty like candid about stuff that he says, and he refers to. Uh, God, I can't. I can't even know how to approach well, it. Was just no. I was just saying, <laughs> if you want to do like your oh Deckard, the okay. impersonation you do, yeah. So Deckard's like he's like a I forget the character's name, but he's like he's one of the old school men. You know, he's like refers to uh, African American men as you know fill in the blank 
but we overheard that, at, you know, as we're, as we're working with, like, students and stuff, we were all like, I don't, and everybody's like, I don't remember that at all. You know, you see, <laughs> drop the N-bomb. But, um, yeah, but in that Harrison Ford narration, reluctant narr- narration voice where he's like, you know, my name's Decker, you know, like, he doesn't want to do it. But, yeah, when he dropped the N-bomb, we're like, I don't remember that ever. Like, <laughs> it's really bizarre. So you just happen but, to find a, a, a really, really deep yeah, cut. Like, what cut is this? Like, this is a, uh, this is, what cut is this? Yeah, yeah it's no cut, just the original you know, it's the uh, super racist yeah. cut, apparently. <laughs> or, you know, it's the 80s. I guess people still were okay with dropping and, the N-bomb I mean, back then. I get it in the context of the movie. I just, we, just, yeah. we just both were prepared for it because we forgot yeah. all about it. And I guess it works. I don't know, I don't know for, for how they're trying to establish the character he's talking about. But, I'm you know, any cut of the movie without narration is one I prefer. So whether it's like, you know, they should just make like e- the definitive cut. Instead of being like, what version of Blade Runner is just like, hey, there's the one... That's like the definitive cut. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what they should just make that one, and that's it. You know, so because there is, you do interpret every version, I guess, a little bit differently as you come out of it. You know, particularly the theatrical versus like the directors with no narr- no no narration, and you know, the ending where they don't necessarily run off in the hills together. You know, well, and that's I think the I think that's kind of an interesting thing to like talk talk a little bit about before we get into twenty forty nine as well. Is the you know obviously there are so many different cuts. There's different information given out there as to obviously the the ongoing question that nerds and geeks have battled about for 30 years now, which of course is is Deckard a replicant or not? And I think it's interesting because Ridley Scott himself came out and was like, "Oh yeah, Deckard's 100% a replicant." And then later they asked Harrison Ford, and he's like, "Oh no, 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 he's a human, 100%." And so, like, of course, this, you know, I think depending upon what version or cut of the film you watch also kind of determined maybe what side of the camp you were on. Sure. Uh, and, and and I think, you know, in going into, at least for me, going into 2049, that was my only requirement that I really, like, was was hard set on was if they answer this, I'm going to be mad and probably sure, not like way. the movie. Yeah, either way. Yeah. It was, yeah because it, it kind of maybe kill some of the mystique or even, uh, you know, I mean, that, that movie, if anything is provoked, you know, one of the greatest like film conversation pieces. And that is, you know, whether or not Deckard's a replicant, I think he is. I mean, I don't think it's that ambiguous at the end. I, you know, whether or not he is, I think obviously more interesting. And that obviously, you know, helps out 2049 a lot. If they would have answered that question in 2049, it would have taken a lot of mystique or it just would have taken a lot away from it. You know, like the debate or the interest, I suppose, you know, and the fact that Deckard himself, you know, well, I suppose we'll get into that, but, you know, you can make an argument of whether or not he even cares towards the end of 2049 anyway. So True. But what about you, Mitch? Like, I, I know that you're not, like, the biggest uh, fan of the franchise, but, like, did you ever have any conversations about this with anyone? Or, or did you have any preconceived, like, expectations going into 2049 at all? Uh so going into 2049 my only expectations lied solely on on the director uh just because i love his work so much um the I, the conversation of whether or not deckard is a replicant uh i have had that conversation i've had that conversations that conversation many times in the last probably decade but more so within the last uh you know couple months with the movie coming up uh from what I, I mean, if you want my answer, I would say that I don't think that Deckard is a, is a replicant just because of the rules that I, how I understand, interpret the movie. Now, a lot of the things that I hear people g- giving the reasons for, um, 
I would have to say that I I don't understand a lot of that. Like like uh, Edward James Olmos's character, you know, making the origami unicorn. I don't quite understand why would why would it be such a secret that all these peripheral people understand or know, but yet not your main character. I could. Um... Wow, this this entire podcast could be just about whether that uh, just on that question alone or that argument. I would say that um, just maybe how I interpret it, especially after twenty forty nine, even more so, is that uh, perhaps Deckard is a replicant, um, and they don't tell him he's a replicant because they want him to hunt these other replicants. You know what I mean? Like almost like the way here we go, three month rules is, is up. <laughs> well, okay, like, wait, hey, wait, okay. before you do it, okay. So anybody that hasn't seen 2049, now's a good time to yeah. exit the podcast and come back later because there is there will be nothing but spoiler chaos and mayhem uh, from here on out. We're talking mass hysteria of spoilers, cats and dogs <laughs> living together. So don't hate us. If you listen beyond this point, you have been warned. It is your fault if you ruin the movie for yourself, which you don't want to do. You don't want to do. Trust me. So with that being said, go ahead. Yeah, but so when, it, I mean, I, I, Haley Joe Osmond shows up and Haley Joe Osmond <laughs> the entire time. I see replicants. I mean, I, exactly. I, I'm assuming I understand what Scott's about to say right now, but is that really a spoiler when they say it within the first five minutes of the movie? No, that, I just didn't know if we were getting no, into that but, territory in, in the podcast. The first question, uh, yeah. or the first thing answered, I wouldn't even answer but that was my question. The first thing revealed in the first probably, what, four minutes of 2049 is that K is a replicant, so, which I, is... Uh, which yeah. I I I just want to say I loved because it seemed to yeah. me like a complete like throw into the face of of people the audience and being like hey don't worry about it we're not going to give you a sure. there's not going to be a big mystery about this one but or almost like a hey we've already we've already done that whole thing with the first movie 1982 exactly he's a, he's a replicant you know so and like I was telling you I mean you know you can look at the first movie as uh, um, a human who thinks he's a replicant, a Blade Runner, a, a human Blade Runner who thinks he's a replicant, hunting replicants, and then 2049 is about a replicant Blade Runner who's hunting human who thinks he's human. You know what I mean? How the story's like kind of, all the, you know, that whole like... It's like uh, an inverse. Sure, basically. Yeah. Yeah. True, true. Which uh, is brilliant. Like, it's just a brilliant, like, stroke. Just like right off the bat. I don't, I don't know if, like, maybe that was the pitch. Like, let's do this. I, I mean, I, I don't know how it went down, but like, here's the story. You have a, you know, a replicant Blade Runner who thinks he might be human. Oh, let's run with you know they wrote a whole story. I don't know. I don't know how it went down, but whatever they did. It, it <laughs> so I, okay, so then you know with the first movie out there, um, as we're talking about that, still, I mean, we'll probably jump back and forth as, as we go, but uh, do you assume now that? Uh, Harrison Ford's character, since you believe in the first movie, in the first movie he's a replicant, that he is an Nexus Eight. I think he's a Nexus Seven. I'm gonna go. I think he's the yeah. same as Rachel because okay. uh, Rachel was kind of a, a Nexus Seven, and uh, I, I think they were probably the prototypes of the Seven line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know we get into uh, was it Frieza that is the the Resistance leader and uh, Sapper Morton, yeah. uh, who are kind of the two nexus eights that we get introduced to in this film at least there's other there's other ones that flash up is it, on is it after screen, nexus but... six is when the lifespan is open-ended uh, that's what i'm thinking yeah, yeah. I, i'm thinking that uh you know tyrell probably in an effort to do you know what we think he did uh which again spoiler uh i was trying not to spoil it but i guess we've already given the warning but like so basically the the thing is is that they have uh, the ability to reproduce at least Rachel and 
assumably Deckard, whether he's human or replicant, they together have the ability to to reproduce, right? And so uh, I do think that, yeah, I think the once they got into the Nexus 7 line as, as prototypes or whatever, he just left that failsafe off and was like, hey, whatever's going to happen at this point is going to happen. Here we go. So you assume it's just a, a, a failsafe, uh, a part of the programming that that's locked in there that they can't have children until Tyrell turns it off. No, I, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think the Nexus Six were incapable of it. I think it's something that he specifically was experimenting with uh, between Rachel and Deckard, um, or at least Rachel and potentially another. Uh, I don't know what you want to call that. Uh, but if you're going to be doing this with with uh, uh, you're doing to have this experiment, why make your Nexus Seven prototype? And give him to the the police to kill other replicants, to retire other replicants. Why why not just have these two exist within your I would company? Say that if Deckard knew he was a replicant, he would have already been asking himself the questions that he was asking himself at the end of Blade Runner way early in the film, like, you know, well, that's, you know that's like the story bad he gives him, you know what I mean? I mean, if he knew he was a replicant, he probably you know, wouldn't uh, want to kill his own kind. No, I that's fine with me, but I mean like you could have him working as a janitor in your in the Tyrell corporate corporation. You that know, he just draft the script. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I understand it's not interesting, to, you know, to watch. But well, yeah. I think I think the thing behind it for me, especially when you look in the context of of the original, and then of course twenty forty nine, is that obviously they still have replicants hunting other replicants, which in actuality makes sense, right? Because sending a human to fight a machine that you know has way better capabilities, sure. way better survival opportunity. I think it makes perfect sense that you would have a replicant. And if you're if you're Tyrell or Wallace, um, more specifically, I guess, Tyrell, who would be perceived a little bit more as, as greedy or, your, you know, your standard uh, CEO type situation, it would make perfect sense that in order to pass the ability to create these almost sentient replicants that there would be some sort of contract in there that's like well okay if you're going to do that you're also going to provide law enforcement with a kill switch or a fail safe sure. i just think that with deckard specifically I, I i'm not even saying that I, I don't necessarily agree that deckard was always the one to be the father unit of the replicant breeding uh, thing I just think it ended up working out that way. But I do believe Rachel was the experiment uh, that, you know, he was really trying something with her because he even keeps her almost in the same situation as as what Wallace does with love oh. is that she's kind of there until she runs away. She's special. Right. And yeah. so it, it's kind of alluded to that she is different. Um, and, and Tyrell also kind of further illustrates that when he asked Deckard to provide a negative with the was it the Voight comp test Voight or whatever comp, yeah. uh the, so i mean I, I don't know i think there's a there's still some ambiguity that's there but that's kind of my perception of of the events or, or the reasoning rather plus um you know rachel i mean she knows it by the end of the movie but remember they when decker first meets her she doesn't know she's a replicant which is one of the things right. decker thinks is so fascinating you know a replicant that doesn't know it's a replicant it's not not aware so 
Are we still talking about? We're uh, <laughs> <laughs> still talking about uh, Deckard uh, being a replicant. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, we're probably going to be talking about that. I know. I was going to say. I mean, this could be a 12 part. Uh, <laughs> you know, this could be an episodic thing over here just on this discussion alone before yeah. we even get into 2049. That's true. You know, that's going to be You're our next podcast this until 2049. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the big things, and we've already talked about it in this this particular podcast. One of the big things about the first movie and one of its many cuts is that there's the narration. The narration gets a lot of people because of the of you know he's just coming in and he's just telling you things. Right. You have you have a crawl at the beginning of, of twenty forty nine, and you have a lot of characters that just walk up and just tell you things like mm-hmm. expository dialogue. What, I mean, how is that any different? Well, the I mean the the crawl at the beginning of this movie or at the beginning of twenty forty nine is uh, kind of similar to the crawl at the beginning of nineteen eighty two Blade Runner, just kind of catch you up on speed. Um, and I mean, let's be honest. I mean, this movie probably isn't taking in new Blade Runner. This probably isn't a movie for, uh, people who aren't that familiar with the first movie. I mean, there's stuff to appreciate about it. Like for instance, my girlfriend, had never seen Blade Runner 1982 and loved 2049. And if you've seen the original 1982 version or any of 15 versions, uh, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of things that you can appreciate more about 2049, but on its own as a, as a piece, like even if you're not even involved in the story, I mean, you know, you, you totally get involved in just the visuals and stuff. But um, I don't think, it, you know, after watching it several times, I don't think it was intended to bring on, um, you know, or, or, you know, intended for people who haven't really seen it, I guess. I, I suppose it works both ways. But well, I mean, I- yeah, but I understand what you're saying. Like the crawl, the crawl isn't necessarily enough. Like you get the opening crawl and then all of a sudden we're supposed to kind of know, you know, kind of how like how everything feels in this world and kind of how people, you know, how, how human beings are, um uh, the decay, I guess, of the erosion of uh, human beings and, and, you know, how they interact and how they live and all that other stuff. And yeah, people just show up and we're kind of supposed to know. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Well, I think I think the other side of it, for me at least, uh, and, and you know, I might, I, I obviously am biased because I think the movie is amazing and I'm, I'm going to defend it. Oh, yeah. um, but for, for me, I think the, the major difference uh, is is when you see a narration, that's really illustrating an internal monologue, right? And especially when you examine the narration that is in the original Blade Runner, is is like you said, it's very exposition-based. It's not really juxtaposition, which is what you want out of narration. You don't want to be narrating exactly what's happening on screen. Sounds like dumbing it down. Right. And I think I think what uh, what 2049 does and, and to why the approach is different is we see him in these moments before that happens kind of being in silent analysis and, and being more of a detective than what Deckard really is. And so when he does get this kind of exposition dialogue, it isn't really any different to me than what you would expect to have happen if a police officer showed up and was asking you questions mm-hmm. about a specific event. You know what I mean? Like if, if you saw a car crash and, and you know, the detective came up and said, I want you to walk me through this. Of course you would recant you know, basically expositionally what happened versus because you, you obviously can't show that. Right. And so that's, I think for me, where that buy-in of, of it being okay in this film is it comes across a lot more effectively as him balancing the Blade Runner detective and interview process of oh, his yeah. character. That's, that's at least kind of how I, I, I would say it definitely that. works to the movie's credit too. how, you know, not everything is like, I don't want to knock Christopher Nolan, but let's say, sure. for example, exposition stuff like, say, an in Inception. I mean, thank God they didn't do this in Blade Runner. I, I didn't have a fear that they would, but like, say, Inception, whereas, 
you know, all the stuff's going on Inception and they're not actually having conversations like real people would in those situations. Instead, they're telling you just short of like looking you straight in the eyes as an audience member and going, we're going to this level of blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Uh, and and literally like holding your hand through every single thing that happens like an inception this movie leaves a lot just says hey this is where we are um and you know here it is i think it works to the movie's credit and like i said adds the mystique a little bit you know about uh, you know not necessarily who's human and stuff but just what people's motivations are how we've adapted to to that that world that we're in um so i think that's i mean that was kind of you know what they're going for in the first one before you know they they made Harrison Ford do the narration thing was that, you know, you, you, you take away from it what, I guess, what you bring to it, you know? Um, I guess I could see why some people would be turned off by not having, by, you know, 30 minutes of the movie going, who the hell is, what's the, was Wallace guy? What's this deal? You know, what I mean? <laughs> but I, I mean, I appreciate that about the movie, you know, and it leaves, it leaves so much to wonder, you know, like about, about everything in the movie. So, uh, well, I, I have to say that I have to, I believe that this movie, uh, with, the K character, uh, you know, being the main character comes off as m- more of a protagonist than Harrison Ford's character Deckard in the first movie. Uh, I would, I mean, I, I've heard this said a couple times and I, I have to say that I've come to agree with it, that I think it feels like Harrison or Deckard is the antagonist of the first movie. Mm-hmm. He's more Very of a reactionary. He, yeah. Deckard kind of spends, uh, I've heard this too. Like, um, you know, Officer K or K Joe, more spoilers. Um, you know, he, he actually see a Blade Runner do detective work in this film, as opposed to the first movie where, uh, you know, Deckard is more like a reactionary kind of role where he kind of, you know, just kind of shows up and and stuff starts to go down and he starts figuring out from there. Whereas in this movie, I mean, we were talking about today in the opening scene when he, when K returns back to Sapper's house, the, the farm, the worm farm. Uh, you know, for, to see if he can pick up some more information on what's going on, and he sits down in that chair and just kind of like waits, you know, not waits, but just kind of looks around the room. And I don't, you know, how long he's been there, but then he sees that piano key and goes in there, just stuff like that. Or him when they get the serial number off Rachel's um, bones, or whatever, still like actually detecting. I think there's one scene maybe in 1982, Blade Runner, where Decker's actually doing some detecting. It's kind of the same thing, you know, like if you listen to the soundtrack, you know, scan in on D3 yep. or whatever, you know, that whole thing. That's the only real detective work you actually see Deckard do. And I'm not knocking the first movie. I'm just saying. No, no. Yeah, this movie is totally a detective. Yeah. But yeah, I, would, I mean, I, I could totally see that. He's definitely. Yeah. He's the one. Um, I, I, it, that might be a plot point. I mean, in a way where people wanted him to do these things. You know what I mean? Like they wanted him to 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 like um, to take the, the path that he did. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like him. <clears throat> excuse me. Manipulation like him being led. Sure versus the discovery that K or AKA Joe goes through as, as this story unfolds. And I, I think that really, yeah. And there's some more stuff we'll get into, I guess, kind of with that later, but, but yeah, I, I definitely feel like there is um, a very valid point to both of those, those arguments that Deckard is very reactionary versus proactive. And uh, I mean, you, that's typically what you do aim for when you have a, um, protagonist is to be proactive and i think uh to a great degree and and again this might be heresy but i do believe that 2049 is the better film out of out of the two we're both gonna burn yeah right wow i i'm Uh, surprised to hear that yeah and and i mean and that's like and i don't know i mean you could speak uh on this in a moment but for me i had like i said i i only had that one true requirement but i did have a 
unbelievable amount of expectation that that needed to be delivered upon and and it got even worse because you actually texted me right before i was going in and you were like it's effing good like it's really good and i was like oh man now i'm hyping it up even more and it still was beyond what i even imagined it would have been like it it not only exceeded but greatly exceeded every expectation i had for for this film there's so much you know credit can be handed to the filmmakers and the studio or whoever was enforcing to you know the idea of keeping as much of this movie under wraps as possible and seeing as little little of it as possible in trailers and and reading about it and whatnot because i mean I was expecting so much, yet I was surprised so much by where the you know where the plot went. I, I didn't. I the last thing I thought when I went there was Decker's got a kid with Rachel, and that I mean I expected to see maybe a cameo or here, here or here or there. You know maybe like Roy Batty, I don't know for whatever reason would show up or something like that. But uh, the way the direction that it went, I was totally totally surprised by. And you know I mean whoever whoever's idea that was to enforce that and make that happen, thank God because yeah. it, it, it was absolutely great and. You know, I, I saw it with my girlfriend in uh, in California, and again, she's she's not that familiar with the first movie, only just hearing me go on and on about it. And uh, I mean, there was a moment, you know, thirty minutes in the movie when I looked over, we kind of looked over each other, and we were kind of like, you know, she said, she gave me a look like you're you're totally happy or satisfied, and you know what I mean? Not satisfied, like hmm, you know, it has to be this good or else. Not like a snobby, <laughs> but just like I can't believe how like wonderful an experience this is, you know. And, it was just so, it was just so pleased. It's the best experience I've ever had in a movie theater. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, I have to second that too. So, relief, I guess. I guess I could say relief was the first thing. Not, not that I expected it to be a, a, a turd or bad necessarily, but just like I expected it to at least be good, but to be that like good, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you, you can have the movie. I prefer not to have the movie on mute, but let's say you couldn't hear, and you went in there. It's even visually, it's the most amazing thing I've, I've seen in, in, in a theater. I gotta, I, well, before you do, I gotta say this because this is absolutely crazy that you mentioned that. So I watched it, I just got back from watching this the third time in the IMAX. I paid three <laughs> times to watch this movie yeah. in the IMAX, uh, which is really my, my uh, thought, the only way to see it. But it's funny that you say that because today, for the first time in my life, I saw someone in there with the little devices that do the closed captioning. Oh, really? And I kid you not, probably halfway through it, they just shut it off and wow. just watched the movie. Yeah, probably because they couldn't even watch Jared Leto uh, <laughs> yeah. talk and close captioning much less. Yeah. Yeah. But wow. But, that's, but yeah, yeah they, too. they were told and then they stayed through all the credits. And it's not too, dialogue so heavy too. I would, it's I would not think. that. Yeah. Not, no, not it's not. Much, no. There's lots of very Ryan Gosling's, you know, niche, which is yeah. one of the reasons he's my favorite actor of all time is, is uh, nobody can walk down a corridor for 15 minutes and stare into the void. Like, like that man can there's <laughs> of that to do with this movie. You know, uh, I don't know, and it's still entertaining. Yeah, like so, it still draws a bit. Uh, you brought up the sound. You're, ta- you're talking about dialogue. Uh, I don't know if it was just my theater because I do live in a small, podunk town where the theaters aren't so great. But man, the audio was so overpowering in some parts. Yeah, and I don't know. You if mean like to to where it it took you out of the film, maybe? Uh, or almost. Like, like it was great. right there on the on the edge, and I know, and, and that might be just because of, for me that it was on the edge because I I watch so many movies and 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 can appreciate certain things, but I know other people that you know might not be the same way I am or you guys are mm-hmm. that they were complaining quite a bit about how 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 loud the the sound was. Well, and, let me ask you this though. Uh, now, was it like loud enough that it was like distorting and modulating, like, or or was it a crystal clear? sound even at that volume uh i would say that no i would say that was crystal clear oh okay. 
<coughs> sorry. <clears throat> okay. No, I just wondered about that because, you know, obviously one of the big deal, like obviously the draw to the IMAX is that the screen is like, you know, King Kong mm. size. Right. Uh, and then of course the, the sound is even louder. I mean, it's, it was so loud at one point that like, I literally like thought my shirt was going to like rip off my body. Mine like did. That Maxwell. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Walk out, like, start <laughs> yeah. Like that Maxwell commercial or whatever they did back <laughs> yeah. in the day where it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it, and, and I am typically not a person that likes super loud environments. Like I don't enjoy going to bars because you can't talk to people. I don't enjoy usually going to live music because they just punch the volume up and there's no real good sound sure. mixing. So you lose a lot of quality. So I wondered if that's what it was, but, but no, I, I agree with you that the sound in this is, is probably one of the few movies I've seen where uh, they, they, take the volume knob and crank it 11 past a hundred. You know what I'm saying? Like they really try to push it. And I, and I think it, I personally think it needs to be that way. Uh, in all honesty for me. Yeah. At least. It's um, I mean, some of it's, you know, like the score, obviously, uh, you know, some of the score, like, you know, huge way for, for how the movie turned out. But as far in terms of like sound, I don't think I've heard or been that impressed with the sound system since, uh, seeing Jurassic park when I was 10 years old. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I know they invented that or invented, they created that sound system for that movie specifically. I know they use other movies afterward, but I remember the first time hearing, you know, like the, the sound Jurassic Park, whatever. yeah, I'd be like, oh my God. And then the opening, you know, the first like opening thing in, in this movie, it was the same, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like you feel it in your bones, but also know to where it was intentional, not like, oh, somebody, you know, yeah. somebody fell asleep and turned the knob to 11, you know, or whatever. But I know there was a sign. Um, I think it was a, uh, yeah, it was an exit sign or something out in the hallway. That was it was like so loud it was rattling and then after like five minutes it stopped rattling and then on the way out <laughs> the exit sign was laying on the deck you know like, <laughs> i mean so Blew the exit sign off the wall yeah so, um, <laughs> but i mean yeah and it was one of the you know you ever you ever like been in a movie theater and you're watching a movie and you can hear the other movie next door it's like a yeah or, you know something vibrates you're like what the hell is going on it sounds like a way cooler movie over there you know <laughs> i wonder who, you know who was sitting next to us on either side of the movie, like, right. what the hell is oh the let Wesley Snipes movie Blade is, is out. <laughs> but so like for you though, you're saying it detracted from your experience? Yeah, like, just because it, I, I just I felt like it I honestly I felt like it, it was uh the like the the loud tones were not in the right places. So in other words the the theater system couldn't handle uh, no, it's not so much okay. that it's this, it sounded more it, to me I thought maybe my, my theater system just instead of spreading it around you know 7.1 or whatever it's supposed to be you know I, I imagine it's supposed to be more than seven but you know uh they are all they're pumping all the sound like through one set of speakers in the oh, front no. over over by the um the screen so yeah i i and i have no idea if that's what exactly what they're doing or not but how many times have you seen it you saw it the one the just one the once just the once just once yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and i i doubt it would be different if i went to an uh went to it a different sure. time because it's still the same theater <laughs> well, I think IMAX, I mean, is, is prepared to handle. So I don't know yeah. if they, they amped up or or uh, updated, you know, their, their system specifically for this movie. But if you notice in the IMAX, I don't know if you saw this, Richard, but in the IMAX, they always have this thing that counts down to like, you know, the experience of the IMAX and it counts mm-hmm. down from nine. Mm-hmm. And it's usually intended for like 3D stuff to where the, the numbers are like coming out of you. But it was in Blade Runner font. Right. And it was in like kind of like a, a Blade Runner kind of cityscape thing or whatever. So, so I was wondering, like, I wonder if they you know, updated all kinds of stuff, you know, for this movie. Including and the sound and see, that's almost what I, that's almost what I'm wondering is like, I, cause I know in, it, it's a, a Harkins or a Regency that you went to watch it at Newman cause that's the two theaters that are there. Right. Um, 
and 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 that's what I say. Like it's off you, world. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> off world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I, I, that's like one of the things with the IMAX is like you you never have that moment to where it sounds like it's just coming from one speaker. It it, it literally feels like you are binaurally hearing the audio of this world. So, and what I mean by that is that you're hearing it as if you were actually in that environment. Um, and, and that's what I'm wondering too, is if maybe you have the opportunity to see this in like a Dolby Atmos theater or the IMAX uh, where the sound systems, and I honestly, for the sound, I, I think I'd be interested to also see it in the Atmos theater because they have like, I don't know. I think it's like 200 speakers or some oh, wow. crazy shit in, in an Atmos uh, theater. So, I mean, that probably has better overall directional representation representation mm-hmm. from where the sound would come from. Um, and so, like, I don't know, just when you're you're saying it that way, where it sounds like it was just pumped out of one speaker. I'm, I'm just wondering if the theaters there don't have enough speakers. To That's do. what I'm thinking. I think they, could, they weren't prepared for it. Yeah. I, I just feel like it doesn't have the actual amount of speakers for the proper mix down experience that the sound engineers and sound designers want you to experience with this. Oh, I, I'm absolutely sure that's what exactly what it was, yeah. and I, I'm just, I just, I, and that's why I brought it up. I just wanted to make sure that you know it probably was at my theater and not something that the film. I mean, obviously the film does decide to uh, amplify certain sounds and and make their oh, score yeah. go a certain way, but uh, yeah, it, I I could tell that it was, yeah. it was probably at my my theater. Uh, and that's like for me that's one of the things that I uh I really love about it right is like uh, even just kind of sticking to the beginning of the movie with that the the fight between Kay and Sapper Morton like the fact that there's almost no music through that and like just when uh Batista who who plays uh Morton walks in and just the you know yeah way comes out of, of him like walking on the on the on the tile there's just like there's so much like gravitas to his step that you're like wow like this is a force to be reckoned with and then you know the sound of him like getting beaten through this wall like i don't know to me i i absolutely loved what the the sound designers and all the sound engineers did on this and uh, the foley artists everything mm-hmm. i i think it was just it blew me away it's like a, like an old western or something like when, when he comes in yeah he dust dust his boots off or whatever mm-hmm. and takes off the boots and you're just even then i mean I don't know if I wanted like three hours of him, but I mean, even then you're just like right. totally immersed just by how it sounded. The Foley, yeah, it was great. We talked about that several times. For some reason, that specific <laughs> opening couple minutes, like how great, just interesting is that just the way you walk that, the the pot of whatever he's making, boil, I think it was garlic. The garlic, yeah. yeah boiling or whatever. And, and yeah, Even just, when he like sets the grubs down on the table and you can hear their little mm-hmm. feet like. And the, the glasses, you can, you know, hear him put on yeah. glasses. You can hear him like, you know, like breathe, like, you know, like through, I don't know. It's just. Yeah, I agree. Great stuff. I understand that was the opening. Or that was in the first draft of nineteen eighty two Blade Runner opened with that scene or something something very similar, at least that setup to where the Blade Runner shows up and I guess uh, kills him in a much colder manner, like she's from the back or something. But they have yeah, they rewrote it for twenty forty nine. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Speaking of uh, uh three hours, the movie ends up being just shy of three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh was there at any point in time did either one of you think that the the movie uh kind of lost pacing or you know could have been suit you know cut up or not cut up but you know cut down a little uh i don't think so at all i uh there's a couple a couple things that were uh maybe in the trailer that that i was kind of anticipating there's a moment in the, in the first teaser trailer where ryan gosling's walking down uh, a street and i think it's snowing and he like looks to his left you know like you're like you know i don't know like a i don't know throwback to the 1982 
that wasn't an, that wasn't an, and then um i think there's another line i can't remember what it was but i don't think they cut or trim too much and i think i mean i think once you um you know accept like except like there's a problem with it like you're resisting it but once you're like okay this is how this movie's gonna be i mean it was a quick i mean it, it was sad when it was over you know i mean maybe for a lot of reasons but i thought it was a I mean, I thought it moved along pretty nicely. It's not, a, it's by no means a fast movie, and I don't mean that in terms where it's like boring. But um, you know, the editing of it. I mean, you know, there's no like quick edits or anything like that. There's a couple, you know, it, where they edit it or whatever. But there's a lot of things where a lot of a lot of scenes play out. You mm -hmm. know, uh, quite a, you know, they walk in a hallway, they walk on the whole fucking hallway. You know, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought it. I thought it moved. I mean, it was quick. You know, two hours. I mean, I might have. I might be biased because I could stay in a theater for twelve hours and watch them do Blade Runner shit. You know, but. <laughs> um, you know, I thought it moved along pretty nicely, but I understand it's a complaint is that mm -hmm. people's asses are getting numb or whatever. Well, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. I think to a certain degree, that is also a conditionment of modern audiences, because I know if you think back like films, I mean, like, my God, I remember watching, uh, uh, seven samurai, the Akira Kurosawa version. The first time I watched it, there's, there's like a 15 intermission, uh, minute intermission mm -hmm. and the, the movie's four hours. And, uh, I was so blown away by that movie that I immediately, as soon as the credits started rolling, I started again. So, I mean, I sat there for eight hours and watched, uh, seven samurai. Um, so, I mean, I think the real thing uh, for me is I, I didn't feel that way at all. I didn't have it. I was, there was never a thought in my mind where I was watching it where I was like, oh my God, this movie needs to end or sure. are we there yet? Like I, I was on the edge of my seat through the whole experience and when it finally did end and I kind of took that like, <gasps> like breath yeah. back in from like just not breathing for the past three hours and I, I don't think it even hit me that it was three hours until I walked out of the theater and then I was like, my God, what time yeah. is it? And I was like, holy crap, that's a three hour movie. And personally, I like, you know, kind of like what you're talking about with the, uh, the studio or the producers or whoever, kind of kept all of this under wraps and, and didn't really have any leaks about what was going on with it had obviously the same tenacity to say, you know what, we're going to let this movie breathe and be as long as it needs to be. And I think it does need to be three hours. I think there's so much, um, there's a lot of things that have to breathe. Yeah, in the process. Though. Exactly. I think there's so many things that have to simmer. And, and to me, even visually we're told that, at the very and we keep going back to the scene, but we're told that at the very beginning with Sapper Morton, they sit on this this pot as it's slowly starting to boil for a, a, an unbelievable amount of time. Like any other movie, they would never let that fly. Sure. They're like, you got to be on you know a two second edit, and we've got to have the right. camera cut Let's get every to some two Blade seconds. Running or something. Yeah, some right. Exactly. <laughs> and so the fact that they didn't do that, and they they basically are visually also telling us, hey, there's this situation that's boiling up but you're also going to be in for a movie that's going to simmer through and not be, you know... Yeah, it's almost an, an analogy for, like, Kay's entire, like, journey through that movie is that, you know, this thing's boiling and coming to a head, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose if you're involved in any story, I mean, you, you can make that case for pretty much any movie. If you're 100% involved in the story... It is, you know, you don't know how long it is, you know. Mm -hmm. And I if think, I think if it's a, like you said, if you buy into it and right. you're in, and you're allowing yourself to get in the story, because if if you're, you know, I think you could have the, the whatever the best movie in the world is, and if you're not like I don't know, let's just say it's a, a three hour movie about vampires. If you don't like vampires at all, then it, it's going to feel like an eternity to you. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're somebody that is very much bought up into the mythos of the Blade Runner world, like that three hours isn't. It doesn't small, feel like three yeah. hours. It, yeah. You know the story. Story, the story of the concept and the story itself has to lend itself to uh like you know a three hour three hour or just under three hour runtime if it was like a ryan reynolds Sandra bullock romantic comedy that was two hours and 48 minutes 
isn't the proposal like two and a half hours? Anyway, some Probably. shit like that or something. And you'd be like, okay, come on. Is there really enough material here to, you know what I mean? But that movie sure, you know, absolutely like lends itself to something being that long. Or maybe like, you know, even like the, the, like the Dark Knight Rises or something. There's, you know, that movie, I don't know if it needed to be that long, but you know what I mean? Like it works for stuff like that. You know, if, mm-hmm. they, if they have, you know, if it, you know, warrants like telling the story, you know what I mean? Then yeah, no doubt. If, if anything, I would say I was bummed that it, it was only three hours long. <laughs> what about you though mitch like was that was so, that did I mean, that kind of turn you off to it were the, you the the length of the movie doesn't turn me off i i do feel like there are things that didn't need to be in the movie um okay personally but and can i you elaborate on jared leto <laughs> i'll get no i'm, I'm that's what i was gonna get into is that uh yeah. i i honestly and i know i mean it, it, i i don't assume it's gonna piss you guys off but it would you know definitely be different from what you how you guys came out of this movie but i didn't think the stuff with joy needed to be in the movie i i honestly don't think that uh ryan goslin's pretend girlfriend wife thing made any sense to me other than to manipulate you to the point when she eventually dies it's it's a it's a it's a character made solely just to she's not in the uh definitive cut no, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in, in Blade like, Runner twenty forty nine omnibus, she'll yeah, be, yeah, she'll be removed from it. Right. <laughs> when she, I mean, she's the one that that gives him his name. She's the one that uh, makes it so that his suspicions of being a real boy is, uh, you know, right there and and part of the part of the movie. So. It, when it comes to the point where she says, "Oh, just put me in the in the stick and you know take me away," and he's like, "Oh, well, what if something happens to you? Then you'll be gone forever." He's like, "Well, then you already know you you know that they've how they've manipulated you to that point." And then when she dies, it's just it's it's it, I felt absolutely nothing for it, and I really feel like I should have. I think if anything, I didn't necessarily feel bad for her. I felt bad for Kay. The fact that he he. Yeah, I mean, I, we talked about this. I, you feel so bad for him in that movie. I mean, he just, you know, he just finds over the course of what, maybe three days. I mean, he, the rug gets pulled out from under him um, on, on, on every turn. But I would say that, you know, I didn't really necessarily feel bad for her. I think it's a very effective scene from his uh, perspective of the fact that, you know, he wasn't, you know, more or less in love with, or he had, the only thing he had a connection with was this thing that was artificial anyway, and it was still taken from him. And then that the whole thing with him and Joy is that, you know, that, that it's kind of the, um, almost the turning point. I know it's at the, the ass end of the third act, but almost the turning point in the movie where Kate, you know, sets out to, to, to do something that, you know, he's in control of for once. And that was, he's going to go get Deckard, uh, based on the whole thing with joy, the, the big hologram joy thing comes down and he realizes, Oh, this wasn't just for me. I mean, he, he knew, you know, I mean, he purchased it somewhere, but he knew it wasn't specifically aimed at him, but that's when it really dawned on him. Like, Oh, it's it's all bullshit. This is just stuff manufactured for anybody who wants it. This wasn't really a personal engagement with me and who I am. And that's kind of the moment where he goes, "I'm going to do something that actually, you know, means something and that has consequences for for better or for worse, or you know, for the benefit of somebody else." You know, and that's when he decides to go after Deckard. Is after that he meets the Joy um, holo- holo- hologram, yeah, holo- neon hologram mm-hmm. thing, yeah. or whatever. And that's when that's when he, yeah, that's when that's the first time in the movie he he makes a conscious decision to do something you know, for himself pretty much. You know right. what I mean? And I, I, I gotta say, I, like the, I, I totally agreed with you and I still do, but I think after seeing it today, I think my interpretation of that has changed a little bit. And I think it is pivotal to have joy as a part of this story, not only for, for, for those particular moments, but it, there's a, the big thing. So here's the big thing behind all of Blade Runner, right? Is 
it's all a deeper contextual questioning of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a soul? What what are the the you know quandaries of, of, of that whole situation? And it's not just from a replicant standpoint, but it is also from from an AI standpoint or or a standpoint of of joy and. To me, it also really sells this juxtaposition of of what really, I think, a, a deeper meaning of the story is. Because when you think about it, and, and you kind of hinted at this when you were like, you know, the first movie's about a human hunting replicants and the second one's, you know, a replicant who thinks he's human. But to me, he is human. He he actually is more human and more real and has lived an actual the, life. The versus, well, not even the humans, but versus Deckard's daughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you really get into to everything that happens, like... Yeah, but how can you Kate say that? actually lives, huh? How can you even say... I mean, literally her memories are what fuels Kay's life. So yes, that, but but, but she, they they fuel he hasn't him to lived. a point. She has. They, no, they fuel him to a point at which everything beyond that, his experiences with joy, his experiences with everything else that happens to him, his experiences with Deckard, those are his own. Whereas when you look at Deckard's daughter, she no longer once she goes into that cell, mm -hmm. that that glass bubble, she no longer has real experiences. All of her experiences from that point on are artificially manufactured by her, and she right. tells us yes, that. but she is manufacturing them. She is creating. She is making a life. She's creating. Whereas, whereas Kay, so Joe, no K Joe or Kay, Kay doesn't even. He, the reason that he can keep passing his uh, baseline test is because he doesn't have any emotion. He doesn't care up until that point. To the point but when he, he fails it. He, yeah. Yes, and that's the only time. Now, when, now and that's because he thinks that he's human or that he might be human or not even human, but he might be the, the kid of Rachel and Deckard. Now, sure. now that he knows that he's not, is it going to go back? Is it going to go back to being just a straight baseline? You, you don't, we don't know because don't, the movie is open-ended. I don't left, believe left, that he would. I, I think, and I think we get told that through the dialogue at the beginner, beginning with, with Morton when he says it's because you've never yeah, seen a miracle. And the moment that that happens is the moment that you develop uh, a quote-unquote perceived soul and that's the argument he's that already off make. track the moment uh Stafford morton says that yeah it already is throwing him off he starts, i mean so then you know, then it, by a, your own that drastic of a change, but, but when he gets out of the car to go into Stafford morton's from when he comes out after he kills Stafford morton he's already different and from that point on he's already intrigued you know what i mean by the tree and all, all that stuff and he's already kind of on like what the hell does that mean never what is a miracle what does that mean and then so i understand what you're saying by uh i think uh, you know, what's interesting about Kay is that he, he is kind of, you know, lack of a better term, a robot, an android, uh, who, who, you know, they kind of allude to him feeling stuff where she, uh, what's her name? Uh, Yoshi or Joshi? Uh, Robin Wright plays his, his lieutenant he has to report to. And she kind of, you know, kind of, I guess you could interpret it as she kind of alludes to the fact that she kind of has to keep him in line because she knows that he, you know, he, that's why he does the baseline test because he knows that he could experience something out there on the street or anywhere that might suddenly trigger something in him to have a human emotion or response. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes off from the Sever Morton thing. And then, you know, when she asks him um, to terminate um, the Android or the Android, the child, the child. Yeah. And he says, I've never, I've never uh, retired anything. I love never that. Killed, yeah, I've never retired anything, never with, retired anything with a soul before. Uh, he he and, says, uh, I've never retired anything that's been born. Oh, been, been born. born yeah. yeah. And he said that would imply that uh, you have a soul, right? Right. Well, yeah. But not only that, like, sorry to interject for a no, second here. The other the other argument that I would make with that is that as humans, we do have an ability in 
certain situations to also turn our emotions off. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for anyone here, but I know like there are times where people go into combat and there's a specific element of, of training that kicks in that shuts down certain parts of those emotional receptors based on uh, survivability or your, you know, your survival instinct. And I think that could, argument could still be made for K in this is that, yes, he, he's still living a life. He's still having these experiences, but there is something innately that's, that's there that is not the same as your, your non sentient or non cognitive replicants. There is an element of humanity and an existence in his life. And even though he might be able the first few times to check through his baseline, finding something out that's going to completely destroy your life versus understanding something that doesn't perceivably impact you at first mm. would be easier to hide any real emotions that you had over it. And so that's what I'm saying. Like I, I just, because he's not experiencing a feeling at the moment of the baseline test doesn't mean that he didn't feel anything prior or after. Right. Just and, nothing to the, the point that's going to really throw him offline from, from them doing what they what they he's pretty much a slave from right. from what he was born or created to do yeah so he, i mean he can go out and some kid can go up and, and tell him i don't know something some really heartwarming on the street or whatever but that's may not be enough for him to, to fail his baseline test they just want to make sure that he is so you know if he's experiencing too much it's fast absolutely fascinating actually if he's experiencing too much stuff as a human he's already compromised to do the job that they want him to do which is essentially uh you know execute life whether you look at it as a replicant or a human being he's still killing so, you know, they, they want him to do his job because he's, he's obviously very good at it and that's what he was created for. So if they, they just want to make sure that he's, you know, 100%. So he can still enjoy things. I mean, he, I don't know if Kay goes to the movies or whatever, but, you know, he can still appreciate things, but just not to the point to where it's going to affect him from doing the cold, hard job. You know, like, well, you know, almost the line he says in the beginning where he says, I don't eat anything until the hard part of the day is done. Mm -hmm. Like, that's an, emo an, an emotion, you know, well, that, the fact that he, he's not, not really crazy about what he does. The book I mean? that he has in his apartment is also a book of poetry, which would be something that if you had no emotion would basically be mm -hmm. meaningless. A narrative you could still experience, but, that's but the whole poetry point of the replicants is they get, they made them, they created them in this world. They created them to do the jobs that people don't want to do because of the emotional attachment to it. Uh, so thus they would not have emotion. Now you could say that he doesn't, he doesn't eat and that could have just been a little line that he said that it has nothing to, I mean, cause look at what he actually does eat. It's, it's, it's just stuff for sustenance, like, like protein stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, but I, I think everyone's eating that at this point. I think that's the whole yeah. point of seeing this massive yeah. Wallace farm. That's all grubs. Like it's not, it's not really any, tr and, and, and I would counter argue that too, because Wallace's, uh, well, not Wallace's even Wallace's models are, are there to obey. And <laughs> yeah. well, you know what I mean? Like, I no, mean, yeah. Up until that point, the androids were doing shit like Roy Batty was doing where they were. Well, they were and that's yeah. exactly where I was going. Like when you look at what Blade Runner 1982 is, they, they do allude to them developing their own emotions. And that's why the Nexus six only had a four year lifespan is because mm -hmm. they had the ability to create their own emotions. They directly say that in the first Blade Runner. So if that's the case of them, it is not hard to believe that that would be the case with later models. Obviously, we we know that Rachel and Deckard are very much capable of creating their own emotions and feelings about things because they both do that. They both end up falling in love. So that the love is not something that machine of non-emotion could if, experience. That's if you can believe that, though. I mean, you you both agree that Deckard is a, is a replicant, then couldn't Tyrell have easily pro programmed each one of them to fall in love with each other? Not, they, it, it's not, it's Wallace not real kind of love. Brings that up. 
Wallace brings that up um, uh, when he when he finally hook, hooks up with Deckard. When he finally uh, <laughs> when he finds in a scene with Deckard, uh, he says to him, you know, or I forget the exact dialogue, but he says to him, or to Tyrell, you know, uh, map it out. I'm, I'm exactly obviously not saying verbatim here, but he says Tyrell, map it out to where you two were programmed to have this kind of chemistry and fall fall in love with each other, or or, or not, you know, like kind of screws them. When I think it, again, it would have been a cheat had they answered that question. Sure. Because we know we wouldn't be doing this. Right now. But he also <laughs> rebuttals that. And he, he responds with, I know what's real. Yeah. So like he does imply, and, and you're right. Like, I'm not saying you're wrong. Like they Almost very well could matter, be, but I think. D- the, I think the more important question is, even if that is the case, does it matter? And I think there's enough uh, examples within both of the film's worlds to prove that they are completely capable of, ex- of, of developing their own emotions because if they weren't there would be no real reason to have a baseline test at all if they were not capable of ever moving beyond their programming into an element of developing their own emotional responses and feelings to things there would be no need for a baseline test because they would never be programmed like the first one and um see getting a baseline test is k and i think that's because he has a specific job to do which is kill the replicants they don't really show uh the the replicant prostitutes i guess mm-hmm. they don't show them reporting anything for baseline tests or you know well sapper was on the run but or you don't see uh, love doing any baseline tests or anything like that it's just it's just k only because you know they want them to stay on track pretty much you know and in, assuming that if they arrested uh tyrell or whatever it is i forget what exactly the crawl says at the beginning of the movie but they uh, they, you know, they, he t- Tyrell got his head caved in, but yeah, he gets, <laughs> right he, he's dead. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but, but they, they, or I'm sorry, they outlawed uh, replicants at after the first mm-hmm. movie, right? Isn't that what the? Uh, they outlawed. Was it the Nexus? They outlawed the Nexus Six. Okay, um, so uh, it... and Tyrell, or uh, sorry, and Ty- uh, Ty- Tyrell's replicants, pretty much. And Wallace uh, introduced this new replicant that obeys. But the only reason that he gets allowed to do that is because he saves the world of Famine. Right. Yeah. That's the only reason. But wouldn't they have put in yeah, some type of regulation saying, hey, you got to make sure that these new replicants don't have emotion so that they don't well, go around killing people? When you control the entirety of the world's uh, food supply, I don't think you can say that. Yeah. And and I think that's what shows through the film is like when you see that he is the only one providing food to the entire like because that's basically what the crawl is saying is that the great famine comes in wallace saves the world buys tyrell and then starts the process back up again so i mean i don't think that it'd be the same thing like this right like um uh who's the one that owns all the corn and shit monsantos if monsantos was the only company responsible for feeding every human alive they're gonna be able to do whatever they want monopoly i mean there's there's no way around that because you're not gonna say okay well you can't do that and then monsanto's like fine f you no more food for anyone plus in the opening crawl they kind of and it kind of explains a little more in the movie it's not necessarily replicants uh you're not if you're replicating not being hunted by blade runner period just a, a replicant of a specific model like the nexus six who are, who are either past their uh uh sell by date yeah, yeah expiration date but they don't never say anything like wallace wallace's replicants are either a get out of line and or being hunted they just say that the blade runners are retiring these fugitive Nexus Six models, mm-hmm. right? So that on its own kind of explains, like, okay, this new breed of replicants isn't a problem. And even Deckard's yeah. line, you know, uh, replicants like any other, uh, like, uh, what do you say? Replicants are like any other m- machine. They're either benefit or hazard. If they're a ha- or if they're a benefit, mm-hmm. it's not my problem. I really fucked that line up, but <laughs> um, yeah. So Wallace's uh, replicants, you know, are, are be- benefit society because they're the ones that have got us through, you know, whatever stuff happened between the eco collapse. 
um, there's a, a fallout or something like that, uh, famine. The and famine. then, yeah, they're, they're building off world colonies for the human race to, you know, um, live long after, after this planet, you know, is, yeah. is over and done. So yeah, I don't think they look at it as his replicants are a problem, but there still are replicants. Yeah, replicants prior from, to him that right. were of Ty- Tyrell make that they are. And and I think the other side of that that's evidence with inside the film is that uh, Love goes in and basically murders the police chief and a dude in sure. the police station, and nobody's Thank knocking you. on Wallace's that's door the for that. Line. That's the fucking line. That's not the, that's in the trailer. That I forgot. There's a part where uh, Robin Wright, uh, her character is Yoshi, Lieutenant Yoshi, or Josie, or something like that says um she goes he owns all the guns in the city he owns everything in the city she's like we can't touch him that was never in the, in the actual movie mm-hmm. but that's what i mean i think it's heavily implied that he is well then, beyond what would normal and 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 you know not only white, that but i mean you also have people that do things kind of immorally uh you know with electronic devices and stuff they sell nowadays uh so i i don't, I don't know think it would be <laughs> i don't think it would be that far-fetched if, to think that he if also you have be capable if, of, if he's able that. to do whatever the hell he wants why does love need to kill anybody in the police station why does she go and kill the coroner she the, the guy comes up and says you're not supposed to be here and she she could just be like yeah i'm allowed to be here i, I work for wallace but no he, well, she kills the guy instead that, yeah, that, so that doesn't make any sense replicant kid thing under wraps and, right and uh if she if she comes in and steals those seals those bones or whatever plus it sends a message because yoshi says later on she's like i know you killed the police chief or the police i'm sorry she totally. says i know you killed the coroner and she's yeah. like but obviously they're not following up on it because they know who's responsible for it and nobody can do dick about right. it it's it's more of the cover-up of the fact that there's a replicant child that exists now versus them needing to uh you know because that's the whole thing is they're they're covering up who knows about it because I, I think she would have killed them and she's regardless. an asshole well yeah and she's kind of psychotic um as well but, but yeah she's not she's a replicant she doesn't have emotion she's programmed oh, she to be, totally she, has emotion she's programmed to, she's, to do that no. she's holding yeah. every time yeah pretty much every single where she's harming somebody she's crying and you you could argue over exactly what yeah. it is she's feeling but she's feeling something there because tears are always running down her face well, and, that, and she's, and then I mean, she's, whole, in a, she's wants to please Wallace too. Like, it, no well, other. that, and then like, there's the whole sequence of 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 the emotion of being like, "Oh, I have to be better than everyone else." Because mm-hmm. she, when she's fighting Kay at the end, she she tells him, "I'm the best." I'm the best, yeah. And that's not that's not going to necessarily be like just a programmed response. Like, I, and that's what I'm saying. Like, there's enough evidence within the Blade Runner mythos to show that they are capable of developing their own standalone emotions. That's the that's what makes the whole concept from from day one, even like Philip K. Dix, which I've actually never read, but just so fascinating is that, you know, the more human than human uh, line, or just the, you know, the fact that these replicants are are trying so hard to be human, you know, right. Roy Batty and his crew, or whatever, and they they want to live, they want more life, and no matter what, you know what I mean? It's like people, whether you want to or not, you you experience things for better or for worse, but you are experiencing things, and therefore, just by that alone. You know, mm-hmm. I am. I guess is the, you know what yeah. I mean. You know, you exist, and that's what makes it so fascinating to begin with. Is like where does where the the line blurs between replicant and human? And it, I mean, I'm sure if, if if Wallace keeps up keeps up with this, there'll be some kind of uh, something will happen with his uh, uh, line of of replicants where they I don't know maybe they revolt or something for whatever reason. I don't know. Just like Roy Batty, you know, they didn't like being slaves. They're pretty much slaves. Well, and they do kind of allude to that with uh, Frieza. Like she's says, you know, I'm raising up an army to mm-hmm. to take back what's ours. You right. know what I mean? Like to stop being slaves. So I, 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 and I don't think that's necessarily something she would have been programmed for. And and you know, living thirty years, that programming still only going to take you so far. And I think that that's that's the evolution of it. Is is that there is a point where the programming stops. 
because programming you can't control it would still be limited sure. yes well i mean like in terms of like them like feeling like i mean you know uh this whole self-aware thing you know like terminator 2 style or terminator style is that at some point though you can't stop something you can't stop something that you create or not uh you you don't have any influence or control over whether or not it's gonna at some point experience something or feel mm -hmm. something you know what i mean and right. how they tend to deal with that you don't have any control over either sure so let me ask you this because uh, we can go round and round with that whole conversation. But, <laughs> 3 a.m. Uh, <laughs> you guys talked about how Jared Leto or Jared Leto's character of Wallace talks to Deckard saying, you know, whether or not he is or isn't a replicant. The fact that Las Vegas is supposed to be irradiated and he, the him and, and Kay are not wearing masks, whereas the, the human characters that come with love when they pick up the two of them are wearing masks. Doesn't that already mean something? We've had this, we discussed this too. Um, before Kay goes in there, he's doing a little, he's got his little scout ship that comes off a spinner car and it's doing this little, uh, little reconnaissance thing of, of the area or whatever. And he sees that the heat signature is from particles, I guess. It's from the bees. It's from the bees. Mm -hmm. Okay. From bees. And Deckard, you know, has been talking about how they, they get into it from that point. They get into it more. They've been covering their tracks so much. I don't think that the fallout maybe wasn't there. Maybe there never was any radiation there or, you know, Deckard, they kind of, you know, kind of hint at the fact that Deckard and the resistance thing that shows up later on uh, was doing quite a bit of work to make sure that nobody followed up on where Deckard was or the child. And I, they alluded to maybe that whole radiation thing didn't actually go down. Yeah. And there is a point even in that sequence where the, the drone scanner is going and it specifically says checking radiation levels. And then it says radiation levels nominal equal normal. So there obviously wasn't any mm -hmm. real radiation but nobody else there, knows that. right? You know I mean, everybody still seems that's why nobody's measured in there. It's because like, hey, it's a bunch of fucking radiation. Right. Um, and even then, like uh, you know, like I said, the Deckard, Deckard and the Resistance are covering their tracks. Did you get kind of the feeling too that the whole blackout thing? Maybe they had a hand into, not necessarily like directly responsible for doing the EMP, but like, hey, yeah. look, if we black everything out, they can't track us. It, it definitely seems like that would would be part of the you know the case and, and what they're talking about and trying to hide this and everything like that i could totally see that being you can make a lot of cases interpretations for exactly sure the lengths they went to to make sure nobody was on their ass yeah and, and i think the biggest reason that nobody would be there is they kind of show there's not really obviously when the famine and stuff started happening there wouldn't be a lot of agriculture in vegas because i i, I don't think there's a lot there now and i think that's kind of also indicative of why he has the bees and why he has all these other you know things there is to be able to live off of the land but yeah i i because we had that same conversation because like well he's got to be he's got to be a replicant if he's living there and the radiation's that high but yeah. I, I i once you see that scan it totally shows that there isn't poisonous levels of radiation and it's just a normal level that you would have well, so like replicants can will probably uh, erode heavily from the radiation yeah, if it was they that could, both bad, a bullet they, you know what i mean you're right they probably would also have because they still have organic tissue so i mean mm -hmm. obviously they would still be susceptible to high levels of radiation at some point i would imagine let's um what, what are we, missing? we have we have like we're just talking about maybe the first scene and then <laughs> right. we're talking about Anybody who hasn't seen the movie is like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> um, let's see. You got the... So, okay. So, Kay shows up at Sapper's house because he's uh, retiring uh, fugitive Nexus 6 models. And did you notice, we talked about this too, we talked about this a million times, but the second time I saw it on the screen when he gets in the car afterward and does the eyeball scan and there's that list of other... Mm -hmm. um, Nexus 8. I guess other on the kill list, so yeah. to speak. And one of them is Sapper's wife, which is, what's her name? 
um, Frieza. Yeah, the, the woman that had the one eye, which ended up being Sapper's wife. Um, and then I guess some of those other people on there are people who already retired. That was like a list of that whole fugitive crew, which I presume is why K was born or built or created to begin with was to hunt down this specific crew or whatever. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, zeroed in on kind of the last one hmm. or last couple, I guess. Yeah. Very interesting. There's so, so many things you could, you know. Oh, uh, there's another thing I talked about immediately with my girlfriend afterward was that sequence when, you know, he tells Joy, let's go for a ride. And they, they venture out to uh, Mesa, the junkyard Mesa, Arizona. <laughs> um, and the way that whole, the way that whole sequence is executed where the, the, they're launching uh, like more rounds at him or mm-hmm. whatever, you know what I'm talking about? And they're flying through there and the, uh, the guy shoots the arrow up and it's got that kite on it that gets struck by lightning, the way that crashed. But the way... I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is the violence. When the violence happens in the movie, it's, it's very brutal. And the way K uh, takes out like probably five or six guys, he breaks that guy's back like effort, effortlessly and then smokes like uh, three or four of them with that gun like that. It's just great. So that whole sequence is great. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally agree. So <laughs> he's just, he's like, oh. <laughs> he's like, yeah, great. Awesome. Yeah. Just like, no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> I, it, it, it's a good scene. Uh, just uh, with <laughs> now. The fact that, uh, and I, I don't remember her name, but the, the basically the child, the child that we're looking for throughout the whole movie, mm-hmm. who uh, has been living in this glass bubble now, and Anna, she doesn't, Anna. she doesn't need to. Is it smart for them to have hidden her in plain sight and right next to Wallace, since apparently he really wants this thing to happen so that the world will be overpopulated with replicants or I've never really thought about that. I guess it's kind of in the way that like geniuses, you know, Einstein didn't know how to tie his shoes kind of thing, but he could tell you the formula for whatever. I guess Wallace is so smart that it maybe he didn't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he knows, uh, well, he doesn't know that obviously she's a child, but obviously, you know, she's working for him. She said she's subcontracting for him to build these memories, but, um, yeah. Cause they said when Kay's doing his investigating, they said there was two children, right. And they said one of them, uh, died because she had a lot of like immunity deficiencies or whatnot or something like that. Correct. He, he names the specific disease that she died for, or that they said she died from. Yeah. And then yeah. obviously she's living in the bubble. So you can kind of make that connection. Like what does that have to do with, mm-hmm. um, I've never even thought about that. That's very interesting. I, but I, I think to, to the point though, is like, I don't think Wallace would have any reason to suspect her at all. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's there's no motivation for him to ever be like, oh, she's. And I, there wouldn't. Now that they've scrambled the records and done all that stuff, there really That's wouldn't true. be any proof. Uh, so I mean, I don't, I don't know why he would ever even remotely begin to think that she was. Again, when he goes, when Kay goes to see the, uh, what's his face running the orphanage, um, attacker's name. Uh, oh Christ. Oh yeah, the guy that played Morton, Mr. Cotton, the Walking Dead. Yeah, Morton. Yeah. The character named Mr. Cotton, and he's running the uh, the orphanage thing. And K remember K demands they uh, take him to the records, and those pages are ripped out. Who who ripped out those records? You know, well, was they, Frieza was it? Yeah, that's Decker what I think. Or I think it was or, all yeah. of it. I think yeah. it was Frieza. That goes back to covering, covering the tracks because yeah. he he kind of says like I taught them how to do it, so I don't think he was involved in it. I think they sure, executed yeah. it, but yeah, like, I, and that's my thing. Like, there there wouldn't be any reason for anyone to ever suspect her just uh, almost in the same way like uh she's more she's just as likely to be the uh, the replicant child as like um the the bald head guy working at the desk or yeah something at the, yeah and then the only the i think the only one that could have penned anything was frieza and that's and, and she makes reference to that too because she's like so deckard can lead them deckard can lead them to me yeah she knows who it is i would lead okay. them to her so kill deckard so that he can't lead them back to me 
You know what I mean? So I think she's the only one with any sort of knowledge. So I don't, I, I think it is the smartest thing they could have done. Yeah, was they put I mean, her... Decker doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Decker doesn't even know where the kid is. Yeah. So I think, I think it is the smartest thing they could have done. Uh, and, you know, obviously hiding her in, in plain sight, I think works very well. And I bet maybe, you know, obviously it didn't happen on screen, but maybe they probably like sent all kinds of joy, probably had all kinds of recon or love recon teams running around outside Las Vegas and, mm -hmm whatever other trashy cities are out there beyond LA or whatever looking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Falling up any leads or whatever. So yeah, I, I didn't even think of that though. That's a pretty question. Well, I mean, I just, I mean, Wallace I, I, like, I know this is, man. I know <laughs> this is, well, I, I know this is 2049 and in an alternate timeline where, uh, you know, obviously uh, things aren't exactly the same as what we're doing now, but like in a company that I work for, they, they went and did a pretty thorough background check don't you think that wallace's company would have went and did a background check on this subcontractor that they would have hired and there would have been some type of things i mean if if ryan goslin's character k would was able to figure it out why couldn't some underling underneath even love at some point figure that out and then i'll say this uh or even the chance that it could I, happen if i was thinking about that while watching this movie it means the movie would have sucked you know what I mean? Like if I if I'm still going, <laughs> okay, what the fuck's going on here? They didn't do a background check with someone. I understand what you're trying to what you're trying right, to say, right? Right. Because I've heard so many, but I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, I haven't even thought about it because I was just so swept up in the story and how, well, how great everything was. But I guess if you, if you really want to think about it, I mean, but even then, like to to answer that question, she didn't work for Wallace. Perhaps she her worked, records were forged. Well, and... she worked for herself. She owned her own company. They talk about that where Wallace tried to buy her out, and she says, "No, I take my freedom where I get it." So she owns her own company, so there wouldn't be anybody doing a background check on her. And even if they did, what would it say? the blackout happened. All of her records, along with everyone else's, were gone. Okay. So, I mean, the only thing they'd be able to do is track back to when that happened, and at which point everything up beyond that would have been falsified, and there's that's everybody. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can even make the, the leap that if, uh, you know, if, if Wallace had do a background check or whatnot, you know, it say something like hey, i was a clerk at a safeway before i got bombed i don't know you know what i mean whatever yeah i don't know okay yeah. uh, just that that's fine um and you know what <laughs> once again that we could i i don't want to say that i was i was thinking about background checks or anything during the movie i just said i to me <laughs> i just want to know like, what the fuck nobody has a background <laughs> check in this movie or what is it a smart thing to to hide her in such plain sight and then right now, extrapolating from that thought made me think of, you know, background, other, other reasons, what way she could have been found out. However, uh, to wrap things up, I want to ask, did, uh, oh, he's ready. <laughs> he's ready. He's like, let's, let's do this. Is Decker a replicant? That's your last question. No, 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 no. no. We, I think we've already covered that, uh, yeah, as much as we can. I want to say is that at uh, something I heard, I heard, uh, from some other people talking about the movie. If you notice in the last scene, obviously it's snowing outside and the young girl, Anna, uh, or I don't know if she's young or not, but the, the, the baby that, or the child that we're looking throughout, looking for throughout the movie, she is right before Harrison Ford is, um, about to talk to her. She is working on a memory and in that memory, it's also snowing. Mm -hmm. Now you can't really see what's going on because she's, her body is covering it, but you do see the snow. Is there a possibility that this is some kind of workaround, you know, with the, I just this thought being... it was just a nice way to segue or transition into that and back into where Deckard is when he's sitting outside and snowing. And I, that's the way I interpret it is just a transition. But so it's not, interesting. Not so much building a memory. That that's very interesting. Whole thing that we were watching. No, I mean, to me, I, I, I just take it as, you know, she obviously 
is going to have some sort of knowledge as to what's going out on outside in the world around her. And she very much wants to be a part of that. I mean, I wouldn't read any more into that than I would when she was in the jungle looking at a, a bug. I just saw it as a transition from snow to snow to take instead of just uh, abruptly cutting to Deckard walking in, you know what I mean? Or something like that. She's uh, that's the way I figured. I mean, in other words, I didn't think anything of it because it's just a nice little lead into it. Yeah, no, but that's what I mean. Like, that's kind of how but, I take it. Is but that isn't that the whole point of live. these movies? Huh? These, isn't that the whole point of these two movies? You take the little subtle things and you try and, you try you see you see if maybe there's a connection or if maybe it's in, well it, I don't it's think the movie's like I don't out. think Blade Runner was ever intended to be a mind fuck like that like Inception style like what if, I, I don't think um I understand what you, I understand exactly what you're talking about but I don't think I don't think um I don't think they would um do that I, I don't know I don't think it was you know I think that the Blade Runner generates discussions but more or less on like an existential kind of like what are you know people's motivations or what it is to be human kind of thing or is so and so blah blah blah, and less so like is it all in so and so's head or did this happen before? You know what I mean? Okay. But to me, that's that's what I mean. I think it I think it further illustrates what I was trying to say is that it's it's more indicative of showcasing that Joe or Kay is the one who actually got to live and have real experiences, whereas her experiences are artificial. It, He's yet. experiencing real snow. He's yep. experiencing the real weather in the real world while she as perceived real is not sure. everything she is experiencing is artificial. But and to, that's the thing is she would know that it's snowing outside. And in order to try and enjoy that and the beauty of it, she has to replicate that. She has that's fucking to brilliant. So that's why I love talking about this shit because you just brought that. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. He's the replicant. He's the fake one is outside right. experiencing this real, this real thing that's happened to him. That's happening to him. She's inside, you know, As making the one and she's the real, real one, one, but she's yeah. experiencing sure. artificial life. Being brilliant. All yeah. That. Yeah, but you, you can't say that before she went into her glass bubble that she didn't experience snow. She obviously had some memories if she put a horse inside of a orphanage somewhere. Sure, but 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 even the okay, yes, I'm not saying she never experienced it, but she never gets she never gets to experience it again. And that's the thing. If you were trapped inside of just a white room, but she might. I mean, Deckard's there to tell her, "Hey, it's all it's all bullshit. You're fine." Well, but she but also she knows that Deckard's her. She also knows that Deckard's her father. So who's to say this? Is she doesn't actually leave that bubble? She know she might she know, know Deckard's no, her father. No, she might, but she, she might not. Father? She might actually have that real immune system because that's the thing. If if she is the the quote unquote the first of a kind which she is it would not be far-fetched to believe that she would also have some genetic problems i was under the impression that that was all bullshit just so they can keep her behind a glass yeah it exactly. could be yeah. it Plus, very well could be she, but it, there is the, uh, the possibility that it also is not. not to mention the fact that you know she's she's had memory you know the whole thing with the wooden horse or whatever that's her memory not Kay's. maybe when she was that young she fucking saw snow and she's out there too right around I mean, she had a little snowball fight with her i'm not, I'm not saying friend. she's never experienced snow i'm just saying she's she's never <laughs> this is where we're going to talk about blade runner 24 and i'm like yeah. listen this fucking character has seen snow before. I just know, you know what I mean? Like, I listen to this podcast, this boring fucking podcast with Planet. I talk about snow, snowball fights. Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, and, and that's kind of goes back to what you were saying, where he didn't live, but but he did. And even if it was a short amount of time that he lived, he still lived. He still lived a life. And that's what I'm saying. Like, he has technically lived Three more days. of a life than she has because she has had to live the bulk majority of her life simulated or replicated. And that's, that's, the beauty of the juxtaposition of the two characters. Mm -hmm. That's the whole yin and yang of the situation no, is that but, one of them is fake living a real life. The other one is real living a fake life. You don't, you, I want to discuss you're putting how on the, the runtime of the movie has now been beaten by <laughs> this question. <laughs> uh, you're fair. Fair no, enough. Fair I enough. That. That's, yeah. why, that's one of the reasons I love discussing these two movies is, is shit like that. Like yeah. I just brought something up and now I'm going to think about on the way home going, that's, that, go. that's great stuff. And I don't know if it, it, it's one of the things like the, Filmmakers obviously 
probably intended that. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Great stuff. Yeah. So I just have to say is that it, it, the fact that the biggest revelation I saw in this movie was the fact that there's a machine that will allow you to look at other people's memories. And that's the coolest thing I ever saw in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we could use some more of that. That'd be yeah. pretty badass. Uh, I feel like there was another movie where they did that, though. Like where they could look at people's memories uh, or dreams or something. Well, dreams, yeah. I mean, there's lots of movies where you can see people. You can use a machine and see Inception. other people's dreams. Like, well, like, oh. <laughs> that's, that's a movie about people talking about dreams who have obviously never dreamed before. Oh, uh, that's true. But uh, uh, no, I, that, that, that was just kind of a throwaway thing. I was just joking around. Anyways, uh, no, he's right. Though. There is a fucking movie. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a movie. Where I, it's, it's like a Soderbergh movie or something like. Yeah, that. where they read people's memories. I can't sure. think what it is now, but yeah. But anyway, is sorry, that mine? Ahead, sorry, with huh? Jesse Eisenberg, mine. Don't they do that? Do it in that? Uh, I don't know. Which movie? Isn't it called Mine? M I N E. I don't know if I saw that. I don't think I saw. No, that. it's mine. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think I, 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 I think it was like something that I've seen before. I fucking. I don't have anything. It would be cool though. It would be cool <laughs> if we could do that. I don't remember the movie about the memory. <laughs> <laughs> Replicants. Replicant. <laughs> so personally, I just have to say that I, I did enjoy this movie, though I did think it was uh, a little long and, and long-winded. Um, oh. I did enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just kidding. No, I know that's fine. That's fine. I, I did enjoy it. So, the filmmakers blowing per, like a uh, you know pretentious hot air for two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, background checks. <laughs> <laughs> Long-winded. Uh, I, I, but I, I, you know, it's not going to be on. Was on... it Jared Little's speeches that were? <laughs> because I, I, I get the impression like you know Jared like like he he was reading all those lines and nobody even had him in a fucking script yet. They're like, all right, Jared, you want to read the script now? Or are you talking about yourself? <laughs> no. And you know what? I, after after Suicide Squad, I don't expect anything for Jared Leto. I just expect Speaking him to be memories that I want to erase. Himself. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jared Leto is his own thing. Yeah, he is the opposite side of the coin from Daniel Day Lewis. He just wants to immerse himself and and be crazy. Then let him be crazy, and that's what you paid for. And yeah, Daniel Day Lewis is a better musician. I don't even know how even know how to play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but final thoughts from the two of you. Um, well, like I said, I mean, Blade Runner has been in my life for you know let's say the better part of my life. So I, this is probably the movie. I've, I don't think I've ever been more excited about a movie or looking forward, look forward to a movie more than this film. And I'd say none of the exceed expectations after I've had a week to let it digest in between <laughs> seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it might, might be, man, it could be my favorite movie. Nice. Yeah. Favorite and again, movie. me and Richard talking about this, the way the movie is intended to be seen, obviously you got um, shafted on, on the sound system or whatever, but, I already am depressed about buying it on Blu-ray. Even though I know I'm going to fucking buy it because I'm a completist. And I want to yeah. own it. But watching it on any other medium besides the yeah, IMAX, that sound already depresses me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you can't turn it on. You can't turn that movie on and say, like, have you seen fucking Blade Runner? And pop it on even your 50-inch TV and have them get the same thing that we yeah. all got, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's already bummed me out. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because, like I said, there was so much expectation, so much hype that this movie could have gone south or sideways so quickly and uh, 
it's I agree. It, this has definitely been the greatest theater experience of my life. Um, so much so, I, I will say this. This is going to be, again, I'm going to have my geek card revoked. But shortly, uh, well, let me, I'll we'll take the journey. Okay, so uh, as Scott likes We're to say. We're having a Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> convention I, yeah. or, or a podcast. <laughs> I don't think nobody's got to be three. Everybody's hours. got a geek card. Yeah, yeah you got to say yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But I'm gonna say it. It's gonna be. It's gonna get revoked right now. I'm, I guarantee you, somebody's gonna get mad at me for this. But the interesting thing in watching this movie is, I went. The theater was pretty full up. This is the first movie I think I've I've seen that is not a Marvel movie that's touted as having an after the credit scene, to where as soon as the credits started rolling, the the theater was still silent. Mm-hmm. All of the credits rolled. And not one person got up and walked out of the theater. When the credits finally ended, people got up very somberly, exited the theater. And it was just one of the craziest moments that I've had. And I mean, I was watching it. And I mean, processing that. Not only processing, but just thinking of it because, and not to come off as pretentious, but like we work in film. And to, yeah, I know, too late. Yeah, (laughs) that ship has sailed long ago. But yeah, here's my card. but, you know, I feel like we do have a little Too bit different <laughs> perspective than just your average film goer. And so I always try to stay and watch the credits to pay my respects to the filmmakers in the process. But to see an entire theater of not one person exiting before the final credit had rolled without the promise of, of, of a treat Nick was mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, Nick Fury with an eye patch was, was mind-blowing. And... Um, you know, it, it, this film impacted me so much that shortly after watching this, our, our other good friend Matt text messaged me about tickets to go see Star Wars. And my first thought was, I don't give a shit. Like, mm-hmm. it, to quote Fight Club, after seeing this, the volume on everything has been turned down. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I, it's like the experience alone was like so monumental, but also pissed me off so much because we've reached the zenith of human science fiction film storytelling and the only other time i felt that way was the original matrix uh which of course i still stand by that too the two sequels stain it's uh <laughs> stain how good the experience yeah. was the first time i still like the the sequels but 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 yes that's that's kind of my my um long-winded response yeah no that. i you, you brought that up uh after you saw it whatever that's one of the first things you said and i agree i mean we a couple of people got up whatever but for the majority of people were just kind of sitting there including my girlfriend i remember her leaning over saying uh, she said, "Are you happy?" And, and in the sense, like, "Are you happy?" Like, you know, yippee, and like stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. But like, you know, is it everything you wanted to be and more? Yeah. Whatever. And she could tell that. I mean, you know, like I said, she knew close to Dick about you know this world, or whatever, and she was totally immersed in everything that was going on. So we both kind of felt the same thing, and we fucking talked about this movie and thought about. I mean, there were mo- times on the, on the ride home where we weren't saying anything to each other, looking out the windows, and not like our relationship's over. We're staring out the side of the window. But, <laughs> Like we're thinking about the, the movie that we just saw or whatever, yeah. and then we talked about so much, and it was just like, I don't think very many or if any movies have have done that. Like you know what I mean mm-hmm. on the way home or days after. You know what yeah. I, mean? I mean, and you know the score, like the score is absolutely amazing. The, you know the tears and rain thing. I was when I walked in, I was thinking, okay, there's we love Roy Batty. There's going to be something. I mean, Blade Runner is a fantastic movie, but that last speech, you know, I mean, is what makes that whole thing. You know yeah. what I mean, or at least come together. And you kind of kept, I guess, not waiting for that moment like the rest of it was let down. But I, I was anticipating a Roy Batty moment, Tears and Rain kind of moment. And then I f- forgot about it because I was totally caught up. And then that sneaks up on you where they play Tears and Rain and not like a fan service where like, hey, remember fucking Tears and Rain from Blade Runner? Here you yeah. go. Like, you know, 
like a like a Star Wars movie would fan service, but um, it sticks up on you and it's and it's impactful. It, it's very yeah. impactful, yeah. And that's I mean, and Kay's theme, you know, his new theme that he's got. It's just I don't know. It's just great. Yeah, stuff. I mean, and the and the cinematography too. I mean, mm-hmm. Roger, if Roger Deakins doesn't win the Academy Award for cinematography for this movie, did Deakins shoot Sicario? It's BS. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I he fucking did. my yeah. god, dude, the stuff. You know, like it's Sicario and in this, where it's just like I mean, there's the, the waterfall thing where he says, "Tell the joy, do you want to go for a ride?" And the next scene is, you know, in all its glory, like a huge. Before you have a chance to actually make out what's going on around it, a huge like waterfall comes down and the, the score kicks up, K's theme or whatever. Yeah, I mean that alone is like you know. And yeah, but Sicario, the same thing. Like, there's all those shots of them going over Juarez and stuff. Anything else? I mean, if you try to pitch it, like, yeah, we're going to take the camera, you know, we're going to put a 35mm lens on it, we're going to go over uh, Juarez <laughs> for 20 minutes. Like, who cares? But the way, yeah, it's just something the way that those two, uh, Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins, I mean, the way those two, like, the chemistry those two have is like, I mean, it's incredible. Is worth the price of admission yeah. on anything. I'll watch those. I watch those two. Uh, if they decide to make a movie about somebody reading the fucking phone book, I'll, I'll pay for it. They, make it. they make it visually interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, you know, Ryan Gosling is in two of the coolest movies ever made. Very true. Mm-hmm. What wait, about you, Mitch? Wait, 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 wait. You just made a statement there. I need to know what the other coolest uh, movie is. Crazy Stupid Love. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Drive. All right, Drive. this is over. Uh, we're going to pack it up now. <laughs> Background check on this guy. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, hey, uh, I'm never going to... We're gonna talk about Mitch again. <laughs> Bringing Frank Scott on the fucking show. <laughs> no, no, no. I already, I already said my opinion. I thought that's what I thought of the how I thought of the movie. So I, I just, I, I just figured we're we're over an hour and a half now. I figure we could go ahead and sign out. We got another hour and a half to go. Then. Let's make a uh, director's cut, a definitive yeah. cut, uh, <laughs> European cut of this. this yeah. This so the super underground European yeah, right. uh, New Zealander Scott. Cut. Do you have any social media or website or anything you'd like to plug? Um. You know, I don't. I'd rather. Nope, I don't. <laughs> I, say, I wish I did. I'd be like, yeah, come visit me at fucking, you know, Tanks Auto or whatever. I, I don't have anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, not, uh, Dude, you should totally buy like tanktalks.com and then you could just do movie reviews and it would be like pseudo TED Talk. Can I be like that like, asshole talks. that goes like, it's good. If you like, uh, if you like uh, romantic comedies, you'll like this one. <laughs> and then I'll talk about Blade Runner. It's a, it's a little long in the tooth. It's uh, what did you call it? You said long, uh, long-winded. Long-winded. That's long-winded. Right. Blown hot air out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. I'd be like those morons that like do uh, uh, like movie reviews on like uh, morning news shows, like you know, like <laughs> you know Arizona Friends, you know Valley Friends or whatever. And they're like, yeah, so it's uh, Harrison Ford shows up, he's good, he's looking good. Uh, Indiana Jones shows up, and it's about the guy with blades who runs around. You know, they don't absolutely yeah. dick about the movie. Why isn't uh, and just Jones based on my name alone? Vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just based on my name alone, I, yeah, I'll make a couple bucks. There Unfortunately, I don't have anything to plug. Um, I'll plug Blade Runner twenty forty nine if you have not seen it. I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've seen it. If, if not, you made it this far pissed. in the podcast, you've yeah, probably yeah. seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the fuck you guys are talking about for two and a half hours, but it had nothing to do with Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, no, I don't. I don't plug. Yeah. 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 Well, if anybody would like to talk to Richard or I uh, about this movie, I'm on Twitter <laughs> as <laughs> at agent underscore of the underscore bat. Richard's also on Twitter as at Ray Cohen, R-I-C-O-W-N. The rest and of Scott Tank at yahoo.com. <laughs> <laughs> gotta go like AOL. Did yeah, you get, yeah. get shafted when they shut down AOL Messenger over there? Yeah. Can't do my movie reviews on AOL Messenger anymore. The I'm rest of Geekly Radio <laughs> is on Twitter as at Geekly Radio. If anybody uh, has a ham radio, I'm available uh, <laughs> at Morse code. <laughs> 
Richard also has his blog. Yeah, but I have not blogged anything on uh, it's uh, Rikoa.com, R-I-C-O-W-N.com. And his Twitch page? Uh, Rikoa, well, twitch.tv slash Rikoan1, R-I-C-O-W-N-1. <laughs> the rest of Geek Elite Radio is on Instagram. It's at, at Geek Elite Radio. Facebook.com backslash Geek Elite Radio is our Facebook page. Facebook and uh, Geek Elite Radio.com is our website. Check out archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on the Geek Elite Radio Network. But until next time, and hopefully when Scott joins us again, <laughs> this oh, I mean, is... that's the bad sign. I appreciate the audition, <laughs> but you're not right for the part. <laughs> I mean, I didn't. I I didn't know that you were auditioning to come on to the show regularly. I am totally <laughs> no, okay, fine no, with it. Scott, next time, if Scott comes on, I'm like, oh shit! I guess I'm gonna fucking car wash. Later. Uh, this has been. No, I appreciate you guys having me on, though. Thank you. I'm oh, really excited well, about you know, this. Thank you, thank you for being on. So, I, if I, I wish I would have had shit to plug it, you know, I, I just don't. It's okay. <laughs> go to go to these guys. Go to Mitch's and Rich's uh, stuff, though. We'll get to we'll get to tank going tank on some geek stuff. elite stuff. Uh, this is the Mitch and Rich show on the Geek Elite Radio Network, saying always remember to geek out, geek out, geek geek out. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out perfectly.